like everybody struggles all throughout because they're teaching degree or teaching whatever career because my network of schools is currently focusing on math. So, and things change, teaching methods change and whatever. So there's been a lot of reticence and a lot of interest from different people and, and different approaches and reactions to us updating our teaching and talking about our struggles. Yeah. And that's been very interesting for me. The kind of struggles that you're listening to a fellow math moment maker a year one teacher sierra classen in her second year of teaching from melbourne australia who's joining us on this episode for a math mentoring moment listen in as we work through this common struggle we have all faced either currently or in the past related to students hyper-focusing on answer-getting over process. Stick around as we work together as a team to unpack some strategies, not answers, to this very common and challenging math teaching struggle. Here we Welcome to the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. I'm Kyle Pierce from tapintoteenminds.com. And I'm John Orr from mrorr-isageek.com. We are two math teachers who together... With you, the community of educators worldwide who want to build and deliver math lessons that spark engagement... Fuel learning. And ignite teacher action. Welcome to episode number 38, How to Move Beyond Answer Getting in Math Class, a math mentoring moment with Sierra Klassen. Let's do this. This is another math mentoring moment episode with many more to come where we have a conversation with a member of the Making Math Moments That Matter community like you who is working through a challenge and together we brainstorm ideas and next steps to help overcome it. You can submit your challenge by visiting makemathmoments.com forward slash mentor. That's makemathmoments.com forward slash mentor. Awesome stuff, John. Before we begin, we want to give a quick shout out to Sarah Jane D who left us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. Sarah Jane D says, Best Summer PD. Over the summer, I am catching up on all the episodes I missed during the school year. I teach sixth grade math in every Making Math Moments That Matter episode offers new ideas and resources for inquiry-based instruction and conceptual learning. Thank you for all your hard work putting together this podcast and making Summer PD possible. Interesting and incredibly productive. If you've been loving the podcast, please leave us that review on iTunes, just like Sarah Jane D did by outlining your biggest takeaway. Reviews help more educators hear about the show, and in turn, we can help make more math moments matter for students. Also, the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast is excited to bring you another giveaway, this time with Whitebook, our source for Whitebook flip charts. That's right. You can easily post whiteboards anywhere in your room and easily bring them with you. Whitebook is offering you, the Math Moment Maker community, the chance to win one of five flip chart packs. Yes, one of five flip chart packs by visiting makemathmoments.com forward slash giveaway. Not interested? in chancing it, you can also take advantage of a special discount that they're giving you, the Math Moment Maker community, 
50% off flip chart packs by simply entering the giveaway. Simply enter the giveaway by visiting makemathmoments.com forward slash giveaway and you'll also learn how you can take advantage of the 50% off discount. Don't delay. The giveaway and 50% discount ends Wednesday, August 28, 2019. Head to makemathmoments.com forward slash giveaway to get your name in that hat. Listening after Wednesday, August 28, 2019? No sweat. We are always actively running giveaways. So check out makemathmoments.com forward slash giveaway, regardless of what the date is today, to learn more about what draw we have running for you right now. Remember, you gotta play to win. Dive in at makemathmoments.com forward slash giveaway. That's makemathmoments.com forward slash giveaway. And now here's our chat with Sierra. Hey there, Sierra. Thanks for joining us here on the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. How is winter going over there on the other side of the world? Well, I have to tell you, it's a bit chilly in these sort of non-insulating environments non-insulated houses, but it's all good. It's kind of refreshing. Fantastic. Fantastic. That's awesome. Well, let's hear a little bit about yourself. Where are you coming to us from? We know where you're coming from, but some of the people listening at home are thinking uninsulated environments. If they're from Canada, like John and I are, they're like, there's no way you are coming to us from Canada. So tell us a little bit where you're coming from. How long have you been teaching? And tell us a little bit about your teaching journey. I am calling in from Australia, but I actually am Canadian originally, and I've been teaching for two years, and yeah, I teach primary school, so that's, well, I teach K-2, to two, so kindergarten to grade two, up to eight-year-olds, and sometimes nine-year-olds, you know, you never know, and yeah, teaching journey, well, can I start, like, at my learning journey and then sure absolutely yeah because i like always wanted to be a math teacher or like some kind of teacher but i love maths so i'm um, in australia we say maths so i might slip up and i had a lot of interesting experiences in independent schools with math especially in geometry and so yeah i really wanted to share that so now i am doing that and yeah i'm learning a lot and also having a lot of challenges, which was what I wanted, all of the things I wanted to talk about. Well, it sounds like you must then be a relatively fresh teacher. And for anyone who's listening, who is in year one, two, maybe even year five or six, if they're at home thinking, I don't have any challenges, I'm going to assume <laughs> that they're either lying to themselves or maybe they're just unaware that there's some challenges that they're facing. So we can't wait to dive into that. But before we do, I want to hear more about your Canadian story. Were you born in Canada? Are you over on exchanged? Is it part of your family history? Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, I was born in BC in Canada and grew up there. So yeah, I lived on the West Coast for a very long time and in, in the in mountains as well. And I moved over to Australia about like 11 years ago. So yeah, I did most of my schooling in Canada. Awesome stuff. Sierra, do you mind filling us in on a little bit of your backstory in the sense about your teaching role? Like, for example, why did you become a teacher? How did you get into that teaching role? Where did that story come from? 
My mum and dad are both teachers. At the moment, actually, my mum isn't really a teacher. She's a counsellor. But both my parents were teachers and like school principals. My dad is actually a maths teacher and a school principal as well, one of those teaching principals. And Go dad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, super cool. And I always remember like when I was a kid, I always had really intriguing maths-related toys. So like I don't know if any you remember those like – or use tangrams. That was a big oh, yeah. one. Yeah. Or I think of rush hour as kind of a math related game in terms of like logic and puzzling and like physical space. And we had like these games where you would get slices of solids and those, ugh, I can't remember what they're called, but they're like these things that you use. They're like circles and you put a pencil in a hole in the circle and then you spin it around the edge of this thing and you make a really cool oh, design. Gotcha. I can't uh, remember what they're called. What but, are those yeah. called? But those are, yeah. Spirographs awesome. or, or spirographs. Yeah, yeah, yeah geographs or spirographs. Anyway, I just remember always being like doing little sort of investigations around those math toys early on and that kind of inspired me to want to share that. And like my sister and I were both like pretty keen. My sister is kind of brilliant in a lot of areas and we were both really keen on math together. So we would kind of investigate things as kids in our lives. So I guess we kind of came from more of that, like super keen in math class and liking to apply our stuff, but things kind of came easier to us. And in some ways, I think it might have been easier to do like math teaching if I had a bit more experience struggling in math. But actually, I do remember early on in school, like in maybe kindergarten to grade two, being like quite actually struggling a lot. And that just in learning to write the numbers the correct way around and like counting and stuff. And then after that, it's when it just took off a bit later on. And I never really had issues after that and just really enjoyed it. But yeah, early on, definitely had issues like dyslexia sort of things. And that's interesting, too, you had mentioned, and we've talked about this on the show before, just this, you know, a bit of a struggle for those who didn't have too much of a struggle. And like you said, you struggled early on, but it sounds like for the majority of the way through, you didn't necessarily struggle too much. And maybe that might have been something that was helpful to experience that, right, to kind of put yourself in the student's shoes. So I'm wondering, before we get moving along, now that you're talking a little bit about some of the mathematical memories you've had from growing up, what is a math moment that mattered to you? Something that popped out in your mind when you think about math class, what would be that memory? So my mom actually dropped out of math in grade six, I think. So that made her know the value of math. Like she was really keen that my sister and I should both learn math. She got us like drugstore math books all the time and whatever. She was just like, she didn't really know how exactly to facilitate math learning, but she was really keen that we would be good at math. So that worked out well for her because we also help her out a lot with like financial maths and stuff now. Anyway, one of the ways that she used to facilitate our math learning, or especially mine when we were growing up, is she would give my sister and I like coins, like maybe a few quarters or some dimes or whatever. She'd give us some spare change and she'd send us to like the bakery or the diner and we could buy something that we wanted. And I remember on like, I think some days after school, 
she couldn't pick me up right away from school. And so I would go to the diner and I could, was allowed to buy something off the menu. And it was just that like real excitement of being able to count the coins and figure out what on the menu I could buy and then like eating it and paying for it and calculating the, what do you call it? Like the GST. That was so exciting to me. And that meant, and the change. And, oh my God. I just, for some reason, just those simple arithmetic things, but that power that I felt like I got from knowing from having those skills. It's really memorable and made me really enthusiastic about math. Yeah, it sort of sounds like that was maybe one of the earlier, at least one of the opportunities that you remember where math actually served you, right? And it wasn't just math for math's sake. It was functional. It was something that actually you could see yourself sort of liking and needing maybe at some point. Yeah, it was evident that it was really important and enjoyable. And yeah, people were kind of like impressed that I was being so independent. You know, I have a similar memory. And I think a lot of us have memories about money, you know, as one of our first powerful moments in why math might be so useful. Like, I don't know about you guys, but my parents used to throw all the spare change and, and why I'm just remembering that memory jogged into my memory. I hadn't even thought about this since you said it about your spare change, but my parents would throw all the spare change in a bucket at home and that buck would fill they would dump it all out on the carpet and we would roll it. Like we would get the rolling papers out and we'd roll all the pennies and we'd sort all the pennies and sort all the quarters and count them all, make sure we have enough for a roll and then roll them all up. And I remember doing that with my parents a lot. Like this is when I was probably, I had to be like maybe seven years old doing that and rolling the pennies and the quarters and then taking them to the bank, giving them to the bank and the bank handing the cash over. It was like, like you said, it felt like so powerful and so amazing to feel like all of a sudden you got this stuff that you could now spend and decide on how you wanted to spend this money. I remember walking out of that bank with $14 in my hand. I felt like the richest kid in the world with $14. And I remember like I was waving <laughs> it around. I was like, look at this. Like I, we got this from change. And my parents were like, put that away. Don't be waving that around. And then we go into like Zellers, which is uh, here in Canada, right? Uh, there's no more Zellers, but Zellers was like our Walmart. And the toy section was spectacular, right? Like you'd go into the toy aisle and just be like, okay, I'm going to pick something. And yeah, I have those memories of like trying to compare what the prices were to what you had. It was always such an amazing experience as a kid. We're going to switch gears here into your teaching role and some of your teaching experiences right now. And before we get into some of the challenges that you want to talk about with us here today, let's talk about some successes first. So do you mind sharing a recent success that you've had in your role and give us a little story about that? Hey, Math Moment Makers, Kyle here, and I've got just a quick message specifically for our district-level mathematics decision makers out there. Do you feel like you're spinning your wheels when making district-level goals for mathematics programming from kindergarten through grade 12, setting new goals each year only to find little to no real shift in pedagogical practice or educator content knowledge across the district as a whole? Take a moment to book a short call with our team so we can learn more about your specific district and educator learning needs in mathematics so we can assist you in taking the first step of many 
in the right direction. Visit makemathmoments.com forward slash district to book a web call with our team today. We have a limited number of spots for districts just like yours. So don't wait. Head to makemathmoments.com forward slash district and grab a spot in our calendar now. Well, so I teach grade one, so that's five to seven-year-olds. And something, I mean, I'm quite a positive person, so I get a lot of joy out of just like seeing kids even just like learning what the number two is. And that really excites me when they just make any kind of progress. But one really great moment for the whole class was one day, one of the kids was going to have a birthday and he'd been like counting down for a very long time. Like, ah, good morning. I'm really happy today because my birthday is in 26 days or my birthday is in like 22 days or whatever. Anyway, like for ages, it had been happening for a very long time. I guess I was getting a little bit over it. And I wanted to make sure that I wanted to like have one final conversation about the birthday and then it would be done. And that conversation really turned into something really powerful in for math. The talking about calendars is great and everything, but this was like really good. So he ended up saying like, oh, he wanted to bring in some lamingtons, which are this, you might know them or not. They're this Australian sponge cake covered in coconut and chocolate. They're pretty good. And he wanted to bring in one for each kid in the class. And then I got him up to the front of the class to talk about that. And then we like, the kids were asking him, we kind of did like a notice and wonder about, I put up a picture of lamingtons and we did like a notice and wonder about that packet in the context of this birthday treat thing. And then we did a bit of a research project. Eventually we talked about like, well, you know, everybody has a birthday and we all like to bring in birthday treats for our birthday. So we're like, how much would they cost? How many treats do we need? What if we want to include the class next door? What if we want to include the teachers? How many are we going to need? What if everyone gets two? And then the kids did kind of like a personal, well, it was a in pairs research project where they looked at where they could buy different birthday treats, how much they would cost or how much it would cost for them to get because the Lamingtons come in packets of eight or the cinnamon buns or whatever come in a certain number. So if they bought them from different places and yeah, it was really cool. They were super engaged and I think the applicability of it. And I guess that money thing of just the excitement of buying things that people get, we didn't even actually get to buy them, but I guess we did eventually get to eat lamingtons from that student's birthday. So yeah, it was just quite cool. The research aspect and everything was lots of outcomes. It's interesting because uh, I was thinking the exact same thing. It's almost like taking your memory of all that spare change and going and being able to do something functional and being able to do something useful with the mathematics. It's sort of like you've recreated that experience, which I think is really cool. And I think the kids, especially young children, really thrive on that, you know, in that environment where they get to investigate and inquire and just really kind of play around with mathematics in a very intentional way. So it sounds like, you know, that's worked well for you, which is awesome. So I'm wondering, can we maybe now discuss and share any struggles or challenges? You had mentioned early on that, you know, you are experiencing some of those challenges. And we know that 
teachers all the way up to past year 30 continue to have struggles or challenges. It's just whether we acknowledge them or not, right? So it's not that these will maybe ever go away completely, but new challenges will kind of pop up along the way. So what current struggles or challenges do you or have you been experiencing along your teaching journey and what's on your mind lately? Yeah, it's interesting that you say about struggles, like everybody struggles all throughout because they're teaching degree or teaching whatever career, because my network of schools is currently focusing on math. So, and things change, teaching methods change and whatever. So there's been a lot of reticence and a lot of interest from different people and, and different approaches and reactions to us updating our teaching and talking about our struggles. Yeah. And that's been very interesting for me. The kind of struggles that I guess the main struggles that I've part of it is like data collection in math. But I think the main thing is this idea of like, I have a bunch of kids who or I have like all my kids do this at some points where they're just like, Oh, just tell me the answer. Like, I'll give them a problem and I'll get all excited and like, Oh, let's solve this together. And they'll just be like, what's the answer? Can you just tell me what number I'm supposed to say? And I'll write that down. And I remember actually being quite annoyed by this in high school, especially when people would be like, they would get out the syllabus and say, okay, all we need to know is this stuff. So can you just tell us the answers that we need to know here? And then we'll move on. And I feel like the teachers, my teachers anyway, didn't really necessarily have solutions for this problem. And now I'm encountering this problem. And like I've found some things that have worked, but I haven't found anything that has consistently meant that I don't have this question like of just tell me the answer. So yeah, that's the main thing. So I'm just going to repeat back a little bit. One of your main struggles is that kids are focused on answer getting and not the process or strategy on getting there, which I think you agree, we agree that, which is mainly the math part of math class is the strategies that lead us to those answers. I think, you know, we've got some strategies I think we can share with you because this is a very, very common issue. Like we deal with this every semester, every year, there's kids coming in and they are focused on that answer getting. And I think that's natural. Like most kids are viewing math class as a get done now kind of class. Like, I just want to get this over. Like, I want to get this done. I want, like you said, even the strongest kids are looking at the, what do I have to know to move on? Let's get it to it. Give it to me. I can memorize it, that kind of stuff. So this is a huge issue in mathematics right now because some people believe that math is about just, hey, let's just get these strategies or not strategies, but procedures and ideas down and memorized. And some people are viewing math as more of the how to get there and the struggles that are involved in there. So there's like two kind of views of what really math class is. And I think teachers have a hard time too deciding what is really math class? Like what is the point of math class? So I think we got lots to chat about here. I'm wondering before we get into kind of our answer getting, what have you tried so far? And I guess maybe specifically, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, like what does the support look like in your school right now? for, you know, helping each other out? You've got teachers to chat with, or I guess what steps have you taken so far with people at your school? Like, what do you guys chat about at lunch, that kind of stuff? Do you want to fill us in a little bit about that so far? Yeah, sure. So I have a really, really supportive K-2 to team. I feel like our team is kind of a dream team in some ways. <laughs> so yeah, shout out to my great K-2 to team. 
part of what's really great about our team is that we have a lot of good open discussions about how we're going in the classroom, what we're doing. We share resources and all the people in K-2 are also like really committed and excited about implementing new strategies in math that we're, and in all subjects, but in math because we're talking about it. So I think that's one structure that I can really rely on is knowing that my colleagues are like excited to implement new things and try things and work with me and my class. So we might like swap classes or do a lesson together or our kids might share stuff that they've been doing. And yeah, so that's really good. And we do network meetings in our school talks with other schools and does professional development in conjunction with other schools. And that often involves like little group meetings, group chats about, well, we might learn about a new concept and then we'll have little chats about something that we're doing. So it might be number talks or Newman's analysis. Those are the main ones at the moment. We've been trying to talk about some project-based learning in math, which is really good. Some schools have been more successful than others around that. So there's those groups, and that's really good as a reflection resource. And also for, like, can go in at request to observe other people's classes and what they're doing. That's great that you have such a supportive team. I often find that we call the younger grades, the early years or primary divisions. I often find that that tends to be pretty common for some reason. I don't know if it's because there's such a drastic difference between the level at which the students are at and the teachers are at that you need to work together to be able to reach those students, right? It really could be a challenge, especially if students aren't engaging in the learning and in the mathematics. I'm wondering what sort of resources does your school slash dream team have for (laughs) teaching mathematics? So like, what does that curriculum or those core resources look like, sound like, like, are you sort of on your own to try to meet the standards or the expectations in the curriculum? Like, are you just sort of feeling like you have to go online to find all of that? Or is there something provided to you? And how are you feeling about those resources that you have access to? Well, man, there's so much available, you know, there is sometimes it's more about like, do you culling through the resources that are available online? in order to figure out what's the best thing to use, right, in a particular moment with a particular class. So there's a lot available online. I have some favorites. And also we collaboratively plan, and I love that. It's really great. I think it's really useful to collaboratively plan to an extent, or at least being in the same room with my colleagues to do, we have like programming afternoons. And it can be just really good to bounce ideas off of colleagues to, and I don't know, immediately share links and find units. We're in an area with a lot of First Nations kids. So I'm sure it's similar in Canada and the US where there are like special techniques and stuff that are recommended for working with First Nations communities. But yeah, so we have that it really helps to work with colleagues on integrating those kinds of techniques as well. And there's like a lot of specific websites around that as well. 
Okay. So what we're wondering now, I guess, is so you've got this great support team, you know, you guys are co-planning and that sounds fabulous. So I guess what does your team think about this struggle of kids mentality towards answer getting instead of the process? Like what have you guys tried so far? Well, I found that number talks have been quite helpful and effective for getting kids talking about more than just a result. I guess partially because it kind of disrupts that worksheet um, vibe or just like the equation, the idea that you have an equation and there's a little box at the end. I guess that the way that number talks happen is like it calls upon stuff that we do in English and history rather than routines that we're used to doing in math. So I won't even say that now we're doing math. We'll just do like notice and wonder and they'll come up with things that are used like mathematical thinking, but we won't necessarily say, ah, oh, now it's math time. And I found that that's been kind of helpful to like sneakily do, I guess it's kind of like a sneaky way, like sneakily getting kids to think about number instead of going, all right, it's math time. So yeah, that's part of what's been helpful. And in that, I started getting kids to like not mention any numbers. If it's like a diagram or something like that, where there might be numbers involved, but I get them not to talk about the numbers and just tell them just to talk about other things, just no numbers, the rules are. And that's been quite helpful in changing the talk. But still, when I give them problems to solve more independently, it ends up deteriorating a bit into what's the answer kind of chat. Nice, nice. So like, I'm really liking this idea. It sounds like so number talks have sort of been pushing students, it sounds like to get into that math talk, that mathematical discourse that we often refer to it as. And, you know, I'm wondering as well, with the number talks, inherently, it sort of pushes this idea of multiple entries, multiple strategies, instead of hyper focusing on efficiency or correctness. And, you know, I try to be clear for those who are listening, we're not suggesting that we don't want to help students become efficient over time or correct over time. We want to make sure that those are important things too, but we don't want to hyper-focus on just those things. I recall earlier you mentioning about getting out of that worksheet funk, that fill in the blank or fill in the box or these little sort of really one and done sort of questions that aren't super rich. So I'm wondering in terms of like, as you're engaging, and I want to go all the way back to one of the successes you had, which it sounds to me like a lot of what you had done in that activity where you were discussing the students working with essentially food and the different baked goods and things like that, where they were splitting them up and all of those different pieces. And you had said that that was a success in your classroom. I'm wondering, do you see a difference? Like, I'm wondering if you feel like what some of those differences are, if we were to compare and contrast, maybe some of what you or I may have experienced in our own math classes, not all of them, but in many of them in terms of that sort of answer getting scenario where we might have been using a lot of worksheets or sort of really one and done sort of questions where we didn't 
didn't really focus on strategies versus that experience you had as a success, as well as what some of the things that we have to do with number talks. I'm wondering, are there some key pieces there that you feel you could pull out of that that might be one of the secret sauce as to why those things help you do things a little bit easier or better in your class than, say, a traditional worksheet or just like a textbook problem. Any thoughts on that? So you're saying, what are the elements that really work in the project-based approach of exactly. the birthday treat thing or the... Exactly. Um, like, are there some elements that sort mm-hmm. of like jump out at you as like, huh, I, I bet you that is something that's really important. And then I guess the intent here is that if we reflect on those things, then we can say, how can I try to pull these elements out of something else? Because the one thing I hope you don't do after we have this conversation is, you know, go and and light all your old resources on fire, right? Sometimes we we sort of tend to do that, right? (laughs) That's a bit difficult nowadays in the digital age. You know, you're melting computers all over the place. It's horrible. (laughs) You know, that tends to be what we as humans do, right? It's like, you know, we try to change things all the way out to the other side instead of making small shifts along the way. So I'm wondering, are there any elements, and obviously you don't have to name them all, but are there any that sort of pop out at you as like, I feel like this element is really important for trying to draw out some of those pieces you're looking for. Hey there, Math Moment Makers. Are you a dedicated listener? Like I'm talking, have you been listening for a couple months, maybe even a couple years? Well, if you haven't taken a moment to leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform, it would mean so much to us. It'll take you under one minute uh, so that you can help more educators see and experience the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. Uh, Do us this huge solid. Uh, We thank you from the bottom of our hearts. And uh, here is today's episode. One thing I really like about basically any math lesson that works is that kids put things into their own language, put ideas into their own language, and use make their own systems and symbols and processes. And I think the fact that kids feel free, feel like they have license to do that in these contexts, like the dialogical context, helps. So that's one of the elements. And I think I've actually... Because there's always a place for practicing, like practicing like addition, practicing things that the kids kind of know and they just need to practice and practice them with bigger numbers and whatever. And so, um, which you could do with a worksheet or a textbook problem, but also I found that to incorporate that dialogue, like doing games helped a lot. And I think it's because of that dialogue between the kids. So like games with dice and manipulatives of any sort, so like paper clips or whatever, anything that involves like, it doesn't have to be winning, but just like any sort of stakes for the kids and where they're motivated to explain to their peers how the game works, <laughs> what they're doing, what they're not doing, giving feedback and stuff. So yeah, I think that's part of what works in both of those successes that I talked about. And then yeah, that is how I'm starting to apply it is by using more games, especially for K to two, right? 
Yeah, like yeah. I think that's a great addition and the games are huge, especially at that level. Kids kids are just, you know, I'm sure you know, teaching that age group that they just view so many things as games. And if you can structure them game-like or sneakily, right? Like you said, like when you say like, it's not math time, it's game time or it's this talk time, number talk time where they don't actually think they're doing mathematics. I think that's a huge win there. Like in my high school class, I've done that somewhat successfully with students by, you know, been learning how to factor polynomial expressions without using the word factor initially. Like we don't say, like we just say we're solving puzzles in a certain way. And then we're using, you know, our manipulatives and our tools, like these little, our algebra tiles, which I didn't even call them algebra tiles, but we just, we're using these shapes to make rectangles. And it's a puzzle. Can you make the rectangles using only these tiles or only these tiles? And, you know, we do them at the beginning of class to, to start class. And, you know, after a little bit, you all of a sudden, we start throwing in uh, a little idea here or there and how it relates to some of the math we've been working on. And then boom, you've got the major parts of that skill down without even calling it math. But yeah, I think games can go a long way as, as I do that with my daughters. Like we play games all the time and there's so many elements you can bring in for game like you know, we talked with Dan Finkel. Kyle probably knows the episode number because yeah, he has the list probably 11. on his wall. Uh, episode eleven. <laughs> yeah, we talked with uh, episode eleven uh, with Dan Finkel about the elements of games. If you haven't listened to episode 11, definitely check that one out. He has a lot of good tips about what are elements of good games, because I think there's some games in class that are are better than others. And I think the one that sticks with me that he talked about was this idea of choice can help kids make better decisions on strategy because that's where so much thinking can happen is, you know, like I think the example I even gave in that episode was that, you know, my daughter's brought home a math game that their school had sent home and to play and it had a spinner and uh, you spun the spinner and, and if it landed on uh, whatever number it landed on, like one to six, you're supposed to double that number. So it was about doubling. And then you'd put a counter on that number from, I think it was two to 12 on your space. And then your opponent would do the exact same thing. They'd spin the spinner and then you'd double it and you would put a counter. And if you filled up your two to 12 first, you won. So they're practicing doubling, but there was no choice. There was no actual strategy in that game. It was just kind of like whatever it landed on, I double it, and then I put a counter on. So my kids, we lost interest pretty quickly because there's not actually anything to do other than double numbers. So one of his big elements is including choice in the game. So I think that was pretty useful. Uh, so check that episode out for sure. So like you could like double it or half it and like filling up the same, everybody's filling up the same number chart. So you have to like predict what numbers you want to get roll or something right yeah. for sure yeah you can modify that in many different ways yeah you could have a hundreds chart or you could have the same numbers in different spots yeah you could have them double half you could have them go yeah yeah um, cool yeah it's like if you yeah. could double or you can add four you know like which yeah you know and, and you have right. to sort of do, you're yeah. gonna do the math in both mm -hmm. cases right yeah, so it's cool. forcing you to make some sort of decision mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. right. Or you can cover one of your numbers or remove one of your opponent's numbers, yeah, you know, cool. like, uh, like, uh, yeah, you could uh, just have so many different choices cool. that you like, yeah. have to really think about what you want to do to win there. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so that's super exciting that you'd want to include some games aspect into your classroom. I'm wondering, I want to go back to something I was thinking about when you were talking about kids working independently. 
sometimes your classroom discussions go well and they're not focused on answer getting. But then when you went to more an independent approach, when it was time to practice the result, you know, practice what they're doing or working independently, they were focused on getting answers at that point. And I guess so what I'm wondering is like, so put yourself in that position. The kids are working independently in your class, however you would do that. And they're at that moment where you're like, oh, they just turned back to the answer getting and they're focused on that. I guess what I'm wondering is, what do you do next? Like, so a kid comes to you and, and they're in that mode where you're saying they're focused on answer getting. What do you do next to that kid right now? Like, where do you go? What's the language you use? What's your suggestion to the student now? Yeah, say you're the student. I might get you to explain like how to do it to a friend. Usually I get them to work in buddies. There's very few times when I don't because I find that it kind of encourages dialogue and other things. It's good to work in buddies, accountability. So I might get you to explain to your buddy how you did that question. And sometimes that works. And sometimes the student might be like, I don't know, my dad told me or something like that. And and that kind of devolves again. But yeah, sometimes that can work. Or we might go to a similar puzzle or like, I don't know, say if we're working on addition, we might, uh, we're like, oh, uh, you know, six plus four equals 10. And I might go, okay, well, like, what if it's six plus, what's six plus five then? And then six plus six, et cetera, et cetera. And then like why, and then to start to talk about why they're related. And then what did you do through that? Yeah, that's one approach. Or I might start, like we might start to apply it to you, apply the question to you, because if it's like to a situation, a real life situation, if it's not already in that context, if it's not already a real life situation, I might go like, like try to get the kid to put it into like apply the, explain this the I guess like it's like the opposite of abstract so like apply it to their own life and that can work but that's much more difficult for kids who are struggling in math as opposed to like that abstraction to concrete and concrete to abstract like that process can be quite difficult and needs a lot of practice. Yeah, for sure. You know, I think you've highlighted something really important, especially at the grade level that you're teaching. And so this would go for your entire dream team of K to two teachers. But this idea of students building that abstract thinking, right? Like for young children, I always find it very interesting because their imagination is so wild, right? Like they can make anything become anything, right? Like my son will come up to me with something he's created on paper or he's created with like Lego. And I'm like, oh, wow, that's like a really nice truck. You know, he'll be like, no, it's a dinosaur, silly. I have no idea what he's envisioning in his mind. So they obviously have the ability to think abstractly. But when it comes to mathematics, there's just so much going on under the hood that in order for them to see something abstract and then being able to like connect it to the mathematics, that is a process. So beginning with that concrete is so important. And, you know, I thought it would be a really good point to highlight some research from Anthony and Walshaw, and we'll include a link to one of the papers. But basically, they go through and they highlight some of the characteristics of effective teaching of mathematics. And this is something in my district, we've talked a lot about these different pieces. And in particular, 
particular, something in their research that they highlight, they actually highlight, I believe it's like, what, yeah, 11, something like that. Let's see, four, eight, looks like 10, 10 different categories and they call them principles of effective pedagogy of mathematics. And here in Ontario, the Ministry of Education or a group from the Ministry of Education sort of took them all, like all of these different principles, and they sort of put them into like four different categories. And from this research, it basically, it comes down to, or I guess boils down to like effective teaching of mathematics involves these four things. And I think, and I hear this first one automatically just in terms of who you are and, and how you discuss and talk about teaching and the students in your classroom is this idea of a non-threatening classroom environment. So obviously, as you can imagine, students coming into the classroom, they have to feel comfortable in that space. And I think you've got that tapped in. So that's a great one right there. But then the other ones, like one is a worthwhile mathematical task. And earlier in the conversation, what I was trying to get at when I asked you about resources is just that the task that we give students and what we ask them to do with it is so important. Some people refer to it as a rich task, and it's not even the task itself. It's not like, you know, oh, you can't use any task from a textbook because it's a textbook task. It's what we ask kids to do with the task. So thinking about what would make it mathematically rich. So when we are asking them, am I framing the question to sort of lead them to this idea that the answer is all that matters or that we actually want to ask them something maybe a little more open, whether it's open-ended where there's more than one solution possible or one entry point, or maybe it's open middle where there's just different solution strategies in order to get there and really highlighting those things. And then the other two, the first one is tools and representations. And that's something that I'm hearing when you talk about concrete to abstract. So this idea that kids have the tools, especially in K to two, having like that wreck and wreck or some call it the arithmetic rack out or the linking cubes, the connecting cubes, square tiles, the different types of mathematical manipulatives. Those would be like the tools that they can use for thinking. And then representing is where they're actually either using tools or they're using some sort of drawings or symbolic representation in order to represent their thinking, to help explain it. So, you know, really what I've tried to do in my own practice, and it's hard to remember to do, but it's like anytime a student gives me any sort of solution or answer, I want to make sure that I'm asking them to convince me somehow. So whether it's like first with your elbow partners, like your elbow partner has to understand why that works. And I would argue that if it takes them like two seconds to convince, then maybe that task or the way I framed the task wasn't as rich as maybe it could have been It had I maybe approached it some other way. And then finally, and you've already referenced this in your math talks or in your number talks earlier, is mathematical discourse. So that's this idea of getting kids talking. Like we know that we learn best when we're actually talking and when we're actually teaching. So those four things for me, non-threatening classroom environment, rich tasks or what they call worthwhile mathematical tasks, tools and representations, and mathematical discourse are all those four. They're big. They're huge. And you might want to just focus on one and then maybe explore some of the others. 
But I feel like when we frame that task and when we really push students to use tools and representations to share and explain their thinking, that's where I feel like we start to move, at least move a little bit further away from only doing the answer getting. Because I think in our heads, like we all think everyone thinks like us. Like it's really easy for us to say, here's how I did it. And like, I'm going to assume that everybody else solved it the same exact way. When in reality, someone might be thinking about it completely differently. And until we allow those ideas to surface and bubble to the top, we'll just kind of go on thinking that everybody did it the same way. Yeah. And Kyle, I think that's like especially pertinent in K-2. In the developmental stage that kids are at, it's very much like a me, me, me. And that idea that other people ha- like have different things going on in their minds and they're like separate and it, it doesn't necessarily dawn on people quite until a bit later on. So it's good to kind of tap into, I guess, harness that me, me, me and really understand that and recognize that in the classroom. So I like that you're saying that. I just want to throw in another thing to kind of think about, too, is we talked with Peter Lillidal, I think, on episode 19. And Peter is a professor out of the Simon Fraser University in BC, and he's been doing a lot of work in the thinking classroom. And I think something that he's been researching right now can apply here. And I always try to think about and include this in my classrooms, which is about the types of questions kids ask and then which questions you should answer and which ones you should not answer. So he's got three different types of questions kids will ask. One is called proximity questions. Proximity questions are like when you're walking by a kid or when you're standing close to a kid, they're going to say like, can you check this? Or a part of that might be like, is this right? So there's those proximity questions when you're close to a kid. And the other type of question is the stop thinking questions. And that's probably more like, is this right? These are questions that kids will ask that if you answer them, the thinking is over. And then he's got the third type of question, which are keep thinking questions. So it's pretty easy to kind of remember these types of questions. But keep thinking questions are questions kids ask that are about, say, the strategy that they're on. But if you answer that question, it doesn't stop the thinking and actually keeps their thinking going. Peter's suggestion about those types of questions is that a lot of us answer the proximity questions and the stop thinking questions quite regularly all day long. You know, a kid, you'll be walking by a kid and be like, hey, can you check? Yep, good. And you move on. Or the stop thinking questions. Kids will always want to ask those, like, am I right? And Peter's suggesting we have to resist kind of answering those questions. He's saying you only answer keep thinking questions you don't even answer the other ones and i don't saying ignore the mm. students because i think especially in i like that class. idea yeah in my class actually <laughs> you know my senior level students you can have the conversation with them about these types of questions that you will only answer keep thinking questions and you could easily ignore high school students if they know that their answer is or you could just even say like is that a keep thinking question or is that a stop thinking question but in your age group you are not going to ignore those kids but i think you can rephrase some of their what you'd say next is i think what you tried to say before and what would you say next on those proximity questions and stop thinking questions to kind of redirect them to try to rephrase it as a keep thinking question instead i think those three things are good to think about in how you can structure what they say because i think if we are answering the proximity questions regularly and stop thinking questions regularly then kids are just going to keep asking them and i think if we start changing what we answer 
And it's kind of like that positive feedback that kids will only start gravitating towards that because that's what you're going to engage with them on. And they will limit those other kind of questions because you're not going to engage with them on those things. So I think you'll condition them to start asking the keep thinking questions. So those are a couple of things to think about while you're thinking about getting kids to not focus on answer getting. Yeah, well, I think that we could talk about the different kinds of questions. We definitely talk about it enough in in literacy. I mean, I would counter that it could be quite a powerful thing to have those kinds of discussions. And also that language is quite nice that you bring up that framework of the different types of questions. I mean, I'll have a think about how I can introduce that with my kids, at least some of them. And also the, I think it was Kyle was mentioning all those different, the powerful techniques for maths teaching or that seems really fantastic. And I think when you think about rich tasks, I guess I was talking about games, using games in the classroom and what's like, I guess that's been really good. And then the extension of that, that's been, I mean, those are kind of like, could be rich tasks in themselves, but like what has been even better with the games is like getting the kids to make up their own versions of the games of their own new rules and like write down the strategies at like how to win and stuff like that. So I feel like that's kind of been the other success angle of that stuff that's been happening in the classroom. But so I'm really keen to like explore that, explore those more. And when you give me the articles as well, I'll definitely read through. Fantastic. Well, I just want to let people know that Landon Pierce has joined us in this episode. So you might hear him in the background a little bit. Landon, say hello. Hello. (laughs) So this is Landon, and he really wants to play Connect Four. So he's going to have to wait a few minutes. But I did want to also reference, and we'll put this link in the show notes for you. It sounds like you... Superhero! (laughs) Thanks, buddy. It sounds like you had some big takeaways from this episode so far, which is fantastic. One more resource we're going to put in. We won't talk about it here, but we do discuss it at length in our four-part video series. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. We also go in-depth into it in our online workshop. So we'll put links in the show notes for that for everyone who's listening at home, as well as for you there, Sierra. So we're wondering, is it okay if maybe we touch base with you in like, say, eight to 12 months? just to kind of see how things are going before we start wrapping up for this episode. Yeah, that would be awesome. I'd love that. Yeah. Share some more ideas and yeah. successes. Yeah, it'd be great to, to touch base so we can chat about some of the strategies you've tried and see how they went. Uh, so, uh, Sierra, we want to thank you so much for joining us here on the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. And we hope you enjoy the rest of your evening, right? We are just waking up, but uh, you are just about to go to bed. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, guys. I really, really enjoyed this. And I think I've got a lot of really good ideas to mull over as I sleep, I guess. Awesome. Thanks again for hanging out with us. And we will chat with you soon. Hopefully you'll have a fantastic evening. And John and I are ready to engage in the rest of the day. Take care. Thanks. As always, both John and I learned so much from these Math Mentoring Moment episodes, but in order to ensure we hang on to the new learning, we must reflect on what we've learned. An excellent way to ensure this learning sticks is to reflect and create a plan for yourself to take action on something that you've learned from this episode. 
A great way to hold yourself accountable is to write it down or even better, share it with someone, your partner, colleagues, or with the Math Moment Maker community by commenting on the show notes page, tagging at Make Math Moments on social media, or in our free private Facebook group, Math Moment Makers K through 12. Also, don't forget the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast is excited to bring you another giveaway. This time it's with Whitebook, our source for Whitebook flip charts. That's right. You can easily post these whiteboards anywhere in your room and bring them with you anywhere you go. Whitebook is offering you, the Math Moment Maker community, the chance to win one of five flip chart packs. Yes, one of five flip chart packs by visiting makemathmoments.com forward slash giveaway. Not interested in chancing it? You can also take advantage of a special 50% discount on flip chart packs by simply entering the giveaway. Simply enter the giveaway by visiting makemathmoments.com forward slash giveaway. And you'll also see how you can take advantage of the 50% discount. Don't delay. The giveaway and the 50% off discount ends on Wednesday, August 28th, 2019. Head to makemathmoments.com forward slash giveaway to get your name in the hat. Listening after Wednesday, August 28th, 2019, no sweat. We are always actively running giveaways. So check out makemathmoments.com forward slash giveaway to learn about the draw we have running now. Remember, you got to play to win. Dive in at makemathmoments.com forward slash giveaway. That's makemathmoments.com forward slash giveaway. Are you interested in joining us for an upcoming math mentoring moment episode where you can share a big math class struggle? Apply over at makemathmoments.com forward slash mentor. That's makemathmoments.com forward slash mentor. In order to ensure you don't miss out on new episodes as they come out each week, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Show notes and links to resources from this episode can be found at makemathmoments.com forward slash episode 38. Again, that is makemathmoments.com forward slash episode 38. Well, until next time, I'm Kyle Pierce. And I'm John Orr. High fives for us. And high fives for you. If you are a district leader of mathematics, a math coach, a math curriculum coordinator, a superintendent and principal, getting teacher buy-in for effective math teaching practice is top of mind. And plans only go so far. You can make you know detailed plans and, and carefully designed goals with clear objectives and key results that are measurable. But that can feel like it all falls flat if we can't engage our teachers in the work. Working with teachers who do not want to change their teaching practices is one of the most frustrating and challenging parts of our job. How do I help teachers engage in effective teaching practices when they keep pushing us away? If you can't reach the tipping point in mass adoption of effective mathematics teaching strategies, then it's, it's likely we won't see student improvement in mathematics. We have a free training uh, and accompanying workbook for leaders of mathematics like you. Uh, the, math, the Make Math Moments team, myself, John, and Kyle walk you through our four-stage process uh, we use with district partners to create clear, measurable, sustainable PD action plans, but more specifically on how to also get teacher buy-in so that it drives student engagement. So step one, register for this free training, get your planning workbook. 
Um, and then watch the training. Schedule some time on your calendar so you can watch it and go through the workbook. After completing that workbook, you're going to have a clear, measurable vision, action plan for mathematics to get more teacher buy-in, but also be able to hit your goals for the 2024-2025 school year. So head on over to makemathmoments.com forward slash four stages to start this free training.